Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. First Samuel chapter 1, and I'll read the first 18 verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophem, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina, and, or Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it came, it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so, so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The Old Testament 
often looks back on the men and women of the Old Testament and sets them before us as examples to follow. Examples of their faith in the word and the promises of God. Examples of their patience and endurance in the midst of much suffering and of their faithfulness to God in times of great trial and difficulty. There is no aspect of the Christian life that cannot be found exemplified in the believers of the Old Testament and the record of their lives is given to us in the Bible for our encouragement and our hope today. The Apostle Paul looked over the Old Testament scriptures and he said this in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. He said, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so it is with us today, the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament saints, they give us much hope and encouragement and perseverance. This morning, and then Lord willing this evening, we'll look here at the life of one of the Old Testament saints. Her name is Hannah. And then Lord willing, we'll look at other portions of this of her life here in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel in future Lord's Day gatherings as well. And we see in Hannah the grace, the favor of God, and the mercy of God to her and her usefulness in her life. We begin this morning with what we can call the great significance of the life of Hannah in the Old Testament history, the great significance of Hannah's life in the Old Testament history. Her life took place at a crucial time in the history of the nation of Israel. Her life spanned a transition between two different stages of the nation's development. One error, the time of the judges, was coming to an end And a new error, the time of the kings and prophets, was about to begin. And the life of Hannah was formed a kind of bridge between the two. The period of judges in Israel, recorded back in the book of Judges, followed that history. And then we have, after the book of Judges in our Bibles, we have the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth records the affairs of a family that lived during the time of the judges. But the ancient Jews put the book of Ruth in a different location, different place in the scriptures, so that the book of Judges was immediately followed by this book of 1 Samuel, and this is the way it actually occurred historically. When we read through the book of Judges, we are struck with the continual waywardness of the people of God. The Israelites had been brought into the promised land of Canaan under Joshua. One would have thought they would have responded with thankfulness and faithfulness to the Lord for his great mercy in giving them the land. But over and over in that book we read statements like this, that the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. And thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And because of their continual sinfulness and waywardness, the Lord would give them into the hands of their enemies. And the oppression of their enemies would be so severe they would cry out for deliverance. And the Lord would have mercy on them and hear their cry. And he would send to them a judge to deliver them from their oppression. And this cycle repeats itself over and over again with various enemies throughout that period of time, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Philistines among them. And then when one comes to the end of the book of Judges, one gets the sense that there has been no real progress. There has been no real development in the nation. The entire period is marked by this recurring religious decline and it is characterized by the final verse in the book of Judges and we'll turn to that, the last book, last verse in the book of Judges in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. And there we are told a summary of the entire period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land to bring about unity of the twelve tribes of Israel. There was no king to rule, no king to bring about justice, no king to guide the people in the worship of God, And the result was this religious confusion and disorder of every kind that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whatever was his own pleasure and his own desire, whatever was right to him in his own eyes, not according to God and the scripture, but whatever was right to them, that's what everyone did. And this final verse in the book of Judges Describe the spiritual condition of Israel when we come now to the life of Hannah. And in the midst of this religious confusion and disorder, her life suddenly now appears. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in her eyes. And the book of Judges now has run its full course. There were great deliverances for God's people accomplished through the judges. But those deliverances were only outward. They were worldly deliverances in their nature. They were only temporary in their duration. And they were only isolated to particular tribes in the nation. The judges could offer no real and lasting deliverance to the entire nation. They were military leaders. They were not spiritual leaders. And it is evident as we come to the end of the book of Judges that a new beginning must come. 
The kingdom of God on earth must make progress in the nation of Israel. It is clear that the nation must be raised to a higher level than could ever be accomplished by the judges. It must be united, it must become more spiritual, and it must be raised to a higher standard. And this is what now happens as we come to 1 Samuel and this opening chapter and the life of Hannah herself is what marks the transition and this new beginning for the nation. The very next step in the nation's history, after the final verse in the book of Judges, when everyone did what was right in, her own, in their own eyes, in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, the next thing we read of is 1 Samuel chapter 1, as this book opens now with the life of Hannah. The son to be born to her, Samuel, was the last of the judges. But he was also the one who anointed the first two kings of Israel in Saul and David. And so Samuel, he inaugurates, he begins the monarchy in the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is a history of the kingdom of God as it moves forward toward its great goal of bringing the Messiah into the world. And now we enter into a new period of its development, a fresh stage of its movement. The time of the judges has come to an end. The time of the kings in Israel now begins and the kingdom of God in Israel is now elevated so that the nation of Israel now becomes a great world power among the nations of the earth. But we also see in this life of Hannah and then in her son Samuel, not only the beginning of the kings, but a revival of the prophets. Because the great prophet Moses died more than 400 years earlier. And since the death of Moses, there had only once in Judges chapter 6 been a prophet that was sent by the Lord. And if we look here in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. And we read this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. The word of the Lord coming to the prophets, we are told here, was a very rare event in those days. God did not speak to the nation very often through the prophets. But with Samuel, now all of this would change The word of the Lord would come to Samuel. He was God's great prophet at that time in Israel. With Samuel, the office of the prophet is revived. And the time from the time of Samuel forward, the prophets have great prominence in the role, in their role in the nation of Israel. And then in addition to this, 
as the book of 1 Samuel opens, we see much greater attention paid to the priesthood and the tabernacle. The priesthood and the tabernacle were much of the focus during the earlier years of the nation's history in the days of Moses and Aaron. But then during the entire time of the judges, they were relatively neglected until now we find that Eli and Samuel are both priests to the Lord who minister in the tabernacle in Shiloh. And so what we see in Samuel is the beginning of the office of the king and the revival of the offices of the prophet and the priest. And the progress of these three offices is all meant to point us forward to the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the preeminent and the greatest prophet, priest, and king over all of his people. These offices are now revived in this time of Hannah and her son Samuel. And it all foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ, the great prophet who speaks to his church through the word, the great high priest who enters in to the holy place of heaven and the king who rules his people by his word and his spirit. So all of this shows to us the great significance of the life of Hannah. It was a time of progress for the kingdom of God. The development of these three offices in this new era. And her life forms a kind of bridge between the two. And all of this shows to us the significance of her life. We read of her here in the first chapter of this book, but Hannah was unknown at that time to the people of her day. She was obscure. She was an unknown woman in this town of Ephraim, Rama. Insignificant in the eyes of the world, humble, lowly, poor, and weak. And yet God is pleased to use the weak things of this world to do great and mighty things. And God is pleased to take those who are humble and to exalt them and to use them in great ways. And that's what we see in the life of Hannah. As small, insignificant, obscure, and weak as she is in herself, yet the God of heaven can still use such as her to accomplish his purposes in his kingdom and to bring about great things. And that's what he did in the life of Hannah. So we see the great significance of her life here and especially as she becomes the mother of Samuel. A second thing we see in the passage is as we introduce her life is we need to answer a difficult question. A difficult question is here considered and the difficult question is found as Hannah is introduced to us as the wife of of this man named Elkanah. We read here in the first two verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramathame Zophan, from the hill country of Ephraim, 
His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So here we read of Elkanah and his wives. They were from the city of Ramathaim Zophim, better known as the city of Ramah. And in the New Testament, it seems that it was the city of Arimathea, from which Joseph of Arimathea came, who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus after his death on the cross. From everything that we know of here from Elkanah, it seems that he was a good and a righteous man, a man who feared the Lord, who desired to do his will and be pleasing in his sight, in his character, in all of the patterns of his life. But there was this one blemish in Elkanah's life, and it was that he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. And so the question is, how do we explain this violation of God's will in regard to marriage in the life of this man that was otherwise a good and a righteous man? We find this violation not just with Elkanah, but we find it with others, even prominent saints of the Old Testament, with David and Solomon. And so the question is broader than Elkanah. And the question is, how would God allow his people of the Old Testament to practice a violation of his will in regard to marriage. It is clear to us as we read the account of the creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 that it had always been God's will from the beginning that marriage would be between one man and one woman. And polygamy or the taking of more than one wife was always a violation of his will. And as we read the Bible, we come to the New Testament, we see once again, that's the standard, one man and one woman. How does God seem to allow polygamy in the Old Testament time? We find that after God weighed his will clear, that marriage is to be monogamous, in the creation, in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Then we come to that great tragedy of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and the entrance of sin into man's heart and into the entire human race. And so what we learn is that after the fall, polygamy becomes common and an accepted practice in the ancient world. In the very next chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, we read of Lamech. Lamech was an ungodly man, and we read of him that Lamech took to himself two wives. And then the practice spreads among the pagan nations and even among the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob. And by the time of Moses, when the nation of Israel was formed, it was a common accepted practice among the surrounding pagan nations. And what we find is that in the Mosaic law, polygamy was tolerated with certain restrictions, but it was never sanctioned. It was never approved by God. It was tolerated by him, and it was always contrary to his will, and it always fell under his judgment. And we can say that God patiently endured with this 
violation of his will. He bore with it until the time when the reform would come in the New Testament period. We have an important passage regarding this, and we'll look briefly at it in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, and we'll read verses 3 through 9. And some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Consequently, they who are no longer, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. The issue that Jesus deals with here is divorce. But the answer he gives here can be applied to the issue of polygamy as well. At the end of verse 3, the Pharisees have come with this question, whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife, at the end of verse 3, they say, for any cause at all. They mean for any light and trivial reason. And then Jesus, in his answer, he points them back to the creation in verses 4 through 6, and he tells them that divorce has never been God's will from the beginning. At the end of verse 6, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then in verse 7, the Pharisees Ask, well, why did Moses permit men to divorce their wives if they gave them a certificate of divorce? And he's referring to a law found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. They ask the question as if God approved divorce so long as they gave their wives a certificate, but they misunderstood God's purpose in giving that law because God never approved it and he never, he only permitted it, he only tolerated it at that time. And the key to understand why God permitted it is found in Jesus' answer in verse 8, where he said, because of your hardness of heart, because of the effects of sin and the evil, the hardness that has entered into your hearts, And because of the low moral state of man and the inability even of his people to live by divine, by his divine will, God permitted it at that time. He never approved it. It was never his purpose. And his will was always to return to his original intention in verse 8. From the beginning, it has not been this way. And so the same thing applies to this issue that we find in the Old Testament concerning polygamy. It was never his will or his intention from the beginning. It has not been this way. 
And he permitted it only for a time because of the hardness of man's heart and the low moral estate even of his people. It was one of those things that God left and waited until the reform and further development of his people. There is a progress among God's people from the Old Testament to the New. A progress under which there is the fuller light of the New Testament scriptures and a progress in which there is the greater and fuller grace and strength of the Holy Spirit in the souls of men. And then there is a fuller conforming to the will of God. It could not all be done at once. It had to be done over a period of time until marriage was once again returned to its original institution. All of our questions are not answered by this explanation, but it does relieve us of some of the tension we feel when we come across such an issue in the Old Testament that God never approved polygamy. It was always a violation of his will. He patiently bore with it. It was always under his judgment It was because of the entrance of sin, the hardness of man's heart, that he permitted it for a time until the time of the New Testament when he would restore marriage back to its original intention under the fuller revelation of Scripture, under the greater blessing and work of the Holy Spirit in men's souls. So we turn back to the book of 1 Samuel. It may have been that Elkanah married Hannah first and then because she had no children as they had hoped he took a second wife in Penina to raise up offspring but however it took place sin always brings God's punishment upon it and he did so in the life of Elkanah as well and in his family as The two wives were constantly embittered against one another and there was constant conflict and no real peace among them, as we'll see later. We come to the third point this morning, which is Hannah's true saving faith in God. Her true saving faith in God. Saving faith is not just something that exists internally in the souls of men. Saving faith in itself is unseen, but saving faith always produces its results in the lives and changes in the lives of God's people. Saving faith always has its fruit in the practical life of the people of God. That's what we see here in the life of Hannah, and we see it two ways in her life. First, in her devotion to public worship. We read this in the beginning of verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So this was the constant practice of Elkanah. And his two wives 
Hannah and Penina, the highlight of their year to make this journey from their home in Ramah to Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were. It was most likely the Passover feast, which is spoken of here, which they attended. And they would have gone to the Passover feast and stayed there a number of days. Each year they would pack up their supplies. They would take whatever provisions they needed. They would load them on their donkeys and they would make this trek to the place called Shiloh. The tabernacle had been the place of worship for the nation from the days of Moses and the construction of the tabernacle. It was in the tabernacle where the mercy seat was and it was over the mercy seat where God promised that he would come and make his presence known among his people. He said, there is my meeting place. I will come and I will meet with you there and there I will walk among my people. So the tabernacle that was in Shiloh was the place of God's special presence and his worship At that time, during the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness, or after that wandering in the wilderness, they settle in the land of Canaan, and Joshua set up the tabernacle in this place called Shiloh. Shiloh is a name, personal name for the coming of the Messiah. Back in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, when Jacob was dying, he called his 12 sons, And he prophesied over them. And to Judah, he said this. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Shiloh, the name Shiloh means the giver of peace, the one who would bring peace. And that's whom Jacob spoke of. And from that time forward, the people of God Look to the coming of the Messiah, Shiloh, the one who would bring peace. And so after they entered the land of Canaan, they found this place. Perhaps it was a peaceful and quiet place in the new land of Canaan. And there Joshua set up the tabernacle in this place called Shiloh. And every year, the faithful Israelites would gather there in Shiloh, For the feast of the Passover. Verse 3 tells us the two purposes for which Elkanah and his wives would go to Shiloh every year at the end of the verse. Or in the middle of the verse, it was to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And Hannah, her heart would have been in complete agreement with this purpose. She would go up to Shiloh with great desire and purpose to worship the Lord, to give honor and praise to him, and to give the sacrifices that were commanded by the Lord in that place. She did not go to Shiloh out of social concerns. She did not go there to be seen by other people. Her concern was centered on God to worship the God of Israel, to give praise and glory to him in obedience to his word. And she would go with her husband to worship and sacrifice there to him. Her desire was very commendable. 
especially at this time, because it was a time of general decay, as we have seen, great decay in the, in the neglect of religious duties in the land of Israel. The rule of the day was what we saw at the end of Judges, that last verse, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see an example of corruption in the lives of the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. There at the end of verse 3, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. And we read of their wickedness in the tabernacle later in in chapter 2 where they would take their forks and take the meat from the pots that were offered, thrust their three-pronged fork into the pot and take the meat for themselves. God had commanded that the priests should not do that. They cared not for what God commanded. They threatened the people. They said, give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. And they did all kinds of other wicked things in the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle and its worship was in a state of great disorder, corruption, and decay at this time. And many would have used that as an excuse for not going to the tabernacle. And the place of the tabernacle. God commanded that, he, that his worship would be there. But many would say, well, why should we go there? The priests are corrupt. The place is under decay. And they would use it as an excuse. But not with Hannah, not with Elkanah. Despite the general decline of religion in their day, the corruption of the priesthood, they were undeterred. And they obeyed the Lord. Every year they went up to Shiloh to worship the Lord there. It was no easy thing for them to do. It was a difficult journey to that place. It took self-sacrifice and self-denial. There was pain, there was effort that was involved in it. Obstacles that stood in their way. Yes, there were obstacles that would have stood in their way and reasons, many reasons why they could have said, well, we cannot go. But it says they went up there yearly to worship them, to worship God. They were determined to fulfill their duty to him in the public worship of God. It was an evidence of her true faith that she was determined to be present in the public worship of God. And it has always been the mark of God's true people that they always desire to obey him and to be in the place of his public worship. We find this so often in the book of Psalms, Psalm 27, one thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Psalm 84, how lovely are they dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
Psalm 122, David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so it has always been one of the evidences of true and saving faith that one desires to be in the house and in the public worship of God. Many today say, well, we can be true Christians and we can willingly neglect the public worship of God in the church. We are not speaking of the sick and the elderly and the infirm who cannot, with a legitimate reason, attend the public worship. But there are many who say, we believe in Jesus, and we will stay at home, and we will watch the television, or we will watch the internet, And then, in the end, we will go to heaven without ever becoming a faithful, responsible member of a local Christian church. And many put themselves in grave danger by such a way of life. The New Testament assumes that we are members of a local church. We should not forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the church is the place today of his special presence, just like Shiloh was with the tabernacle and the mercy seat. It was a place of his special presence. So is the church today in the New Testament time. There I will be in the midst of them and walk among them, says Jesus. And who would not desire to be in the special presence of Jesus? That's what we see here. The first mark of her true faith was her devotion to public worship. The second mark of her true faith was Hannah's view of God, her knowledge, her view of the great and mighty God. And we see this in the name that she gave to God in this passage, or the name that we read of God here in this passage, in the middle of verse 3, where we are told that she went to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, Jehovah And that's the name by which he is given here, Jehovah of hosts. This is the first time in the Bible that this name of God appears. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, various names were given to God to reveal his character. Each name had great significance. And as the history of the nation moved forward, more and more of God's character was revealed, and so more names were given which spoke of his character. For example, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read the name God, Elohim. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim means that he is the living God. And it was fitting that in the creation of all things, that God should reveal himself as the living God who gives life to all of his creation. Then in the days of Moses in Exodus chapter 2, when God fulfills the 
ancient promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and brings his people out of bondage in Egypt. He revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as Jehovah. I am who I am. And the name Jehovah means that he is the eternal and unchanging and self-sufficient God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always faithful to his people. And it was an appropriate time at that deliverance out of the nation, out of the bondage of Egypt, that he would reveal himself as the faithful, unchanging God. Faithful always to his people and to his promises. But here, now in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 3, we come to this new name that is given to the Lord, Jehovah of hosts. The first time the name appears... And there's great significance here. And the reason why this name is given here in verse 3 is because Hannah herself was the first one to use this name in her prayer down in verse 11. We look down at verse 11, and she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on on the affliction of thy maidservant and Remember me. Hannah's the first one in the Bible to ever use this name, Jehovah of hosts. Hosts refers to the angels of heaven, the mighty angels of God that surround his throne. And they do his will. They are powerful beings. They are holy. They are pure. They are obedient to his commands. Whatever he speaks They do his will. And he has this mighty army of angels in heaven. And he sends them to accomplish his purposes. And they have great power to defeat all of his enemies. Now there were various compound names used in the Old Testament in regard to Jehovah at different times. For example, Jehovah will provide. Abraham used that in Genesis chapter 22. Jehovah will provide a sacrifice for sin. Jehovah, your healer, when he healed the bitter waters of Marah in Exodus chapter 15, Jehovah is your healer. Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah is our peace. That's what Paul had in mind in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 when he said that Jesus is our peace. Jehovah Roy, Jehovah is my shepherd, used by David in the Psalms. Jehovah our righteousness, used by Jeremiah. Christ becomes our righteousness in the New Testament. Jehovah of hosts is, tells us the view that Hannah had of God. That he is Jehovah, he is the unchanging, all-sufficient, eternal God of heaven upon his throne and around his throne. There are all of the hosts of heaven, this mighty army of angels, always willing, always standing in obedience to accomplish all of his will. That was how she viewed God. And that's how we have this expression for the first time, this name of Jehovah that is given to us here for the first time from the lips of Hannah. This name Jehovah of hosts 
used throughout the Old Testament from this time forward. When you read through the Old Testament, you recognize how often, how frequently this name is used, Jehovah of Hosts. And it is used always at a time when the people of God have experienced or are in danger of great defeat. This name Jehovah of Hosts reminded them of his great power that though their enemies seem to be so strong all around them, yet Jehovah of Hosts is always stronger than them and he is always sufficient and able to come and help them in every time of need. In their weakness, he was their strength. This was comfort to the Old Testament people. And despite all of their failures, Jehovah of hosts was able to save them. The God who rules all the angels of heaven. And that's the name that Hannah gives to him here. It was evidence of her true Faith and confidence of God, it was a mark of her spirituality. What she had done is she had looked back over the Old Testament scriptures and she had seen how Jehovah had sent angels down to help his people in times past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she recognized he has a great multitude in heaven, 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels who are always willing to do his will. And she called upon him, in this way, as the Lord of hosts. So this is who she came up to worship in Shiloh, to worship him, to give praise to him, and to offer sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And this is who she prayed for in her affliction. We'll just look at a couple of verses real quickly. Psalm 103 Psalm 103, and verse 19, David says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying his voice, the the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah, with all of his hosts who serve him, doing his will. So this is David's view of God as well, just like Hannah. Hannah is where it all began. The God who sits on his throne of sovereignty with all of his mighty angels to accomplish his will. We turn over to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. And verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. And then David goes on to call upon all of the creation and all living things and all men to praise him. Verse 13 and 14. Let them praise the name of Jehovah. And let his name alone be exalted, his glory 
is above the earth and heaven, and he has lifted up a horn for his people, praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, people near to him, praise the Lord. He is Jehovah of hosts, the great God of heaven with all his mighty angels, and this is where it all began with Hannah and her view of the great God in 1 Samuel chapter 3. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Psalm 34 and verse 7. That's what she believed. That was evidence of her faith. The angel of the Lord comes and encamps in a military-style defense of great power. The angel of the Lord encamps, encompasses around those who fear him and obey him and do his will, and he rescues them from all of their troubles. And that's how Hannah came to God in her great affliction and her great need. And Jehovah of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. And we ourselves as believers, we are near to him. As his people, we are able to come to him with all of our fears, anxieties, and worries in life. All of our troubles and afflictions, we may come and cast them upon the Lord. And as Hannah said, Lord, if you would just remember me, then that is all that I need and everything will be cared for by you in heaven, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, who is able to help us in every time of need. Yes, we have our weaknesses and our failures and our many sins. But he will not forsake us. And he will never leave us to ourselves. He is always the God who is able to help us with all of our needs. And so we may come to him, each of us individually, corporately, and cast our needs upon him. And he will help us in every time of need. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the glorious God that you are. The Lord of hosts, who is enthroned in the heavens on your glorious throne of power and might. The God of sovereignty and the God who has mighty angels. who He sends out as ministering spirits to those who will to give render aid to those who will inherit salvation. We thank you for your great blessing upon us as your people, and we pray that you would give us grace and help now throughout this day, that we would have many thoughts of your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness to us. And we do commit ourselves to you and ask for your grace to be upon us afresh, that we might be pleasing to you in every way, And we ask that you would forgive our sins and cleanse us in the precious blood of your beloved Son and help us to be clean and pure in your sight and to walk in all of your ways. We pray that you would hear us now and bless your word to us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.